Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is Dr. Corey Shockey, who leads the defense and foreign policy practice at the American Enterprise Institute Think Tank. She is one of the nation's leading thinkers on national security, on strategy, as well as the civilian-military divide. Corey, thanks so very much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Uh, always uh, terrific having you on. You were kind enough to join us uh, a couple of months ago for our deep dive uh, strategy conversation, and we're certainly glad to go around the horn with you on some of those issues uh, and more. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage and Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace conference and trade show uh, that took place just outside Washington, D.C. in person uh, last week. Um, Corey, um, you know, I, I want to sort of cover the gamut with you, right? And, and I want to start with Afghanistan. Um, obviously, um, you know, the American uh, people are tired of Afghanistan. I think uh, President Biden wanted to wrap the war up on this, the 20th anniversary soon uh, of, of uh, 9-11, uh, carrying on some of the policies of his, of his predecessor, and yet still roundly criticized that, hey, if we withdraw these troops, there is going to be a collapse in the country, and that's going to precipitate a different uh, kind of crisis, right? Inaction is action in and of itself, whether it's a U.S. administration uh, pulling out of Iraq only to return uh, because uh, ISIS metastasized. From your standpoint, is this going to be sort of a watershed strategic mistake for the United States? Would it have been better off to have kept 4,500 troops there? supporting the Afghans in, in their fight against the Taliban? I do think our interests would have been better served sustaining our support for the Afghan government and the Afghan national security forces. I think um, I'm less persuaded than many people that we are gonna see a burgeoning of terrorist threats against the American homeland as a result of this. Because, you know, we've had 20 years and enormous improvements in our ability to play defense against external terrorist threats in the United States. We know more about them. We're better at identifying them. We're better at tracking. We're better at cooperating with other countries to share information, all that important stuff. We play a lot better defense than we did, but it does break my heart to see what is already manifesting itself in Afghanistan, which is the collapse of confidence of Afghan security forces and the rolling up of territory and population centers by the Taliban, the threats to those who had, not just those who had supported the American and Afghan war effort, but those who benefited from the changes like girls being able to go to school. It's gonna be hard for the Biden administration to continue to strike such brave poses about human rights being at the core of American foreign policy, uh, given what is happening and is likely to uh, happen even more sorrowfully in Afghanistan as a result of this decision. Uh, nature uh, and geostrategy abhor vac vacuums. Um, Turks are now uh, in uh, Bagram, 
uh, and running that airfield. China has uh, made uh, pr profound uh, gains. And if you look at at it, it's unlikely that the Russians are not going to manage to play some sort of role, uh, whether through proxies or or directly. Um, ultimately, what's it going to and and where does this go? Right, I mean, there's this sense that uh, the Taliban will not want to take Kabul uh, ultimately because you know it would be better to have sort of a, a friendlier face that can draw international support and money. But what we've seen is in virtually every place the Taliban have succeeded because Afghan opposition has effectively melted away. What's, what's at stake here more broadly? And how does the United States, I mean, do, do, will we have to surge back there in a year, ultimately? And how do we preserve our long-term strategic interests? Because we're getting out of Afghanistan, but we're still staying in Iraq. And for many people, that's, there's sort of a disconnect there. Hang on a second. So we're going to keep 2,500 people in Iraq but we're, we're only going to have a couple of hundred people in, in Afghanistan. I mean, how does this play out and what do we have to do to protect our strategic interest or is it too late at this point? Uh, I think you're right to point to the contradiction between Biden administration policy in Iraq and Syria and, and Biden administration policy in Afghanistan. I do think that's a fundamental contradiction. And I don't think we're actually going to sustain our strategic interests in Afghanistan, which in my judgment uh, have three elements. The first um, is helping the government of Afghanistan to be strong enough to police and secure its own territory. Second, to assist a government struggling to transition to representative accountability. Um, and third, to help the people of Afghanistan to protect themselves against the violence, um, not only in their midst, namely the Taliban, but also the sort of buzzards preying on a carcass uh, behavior of Pakistan and other countries. You know, you mentioned several countries interfering in Afghanistan, but I don't, unless I uh, was inattentive, my friend, Pakistan, the country that has done right. the most damage to Afghanistan was not mentioned and should right. be. Agreed. And uh, obviously one of the most complicating uh, elements of this from the very, very beginning, uh, right? On ethnic, yeah. uh, cultural, uh, border historic uh, lines uh, and and certainly you know not not I think we can all agree a, a constructive actor uh, in in the outcome although I can see it from a Pakistan uh, standpoint as well right you, you guys have sort of barreled in here and don't really have a, a, a very big plan for what it is you want to do especially since they want to use terror in their own ways whether against India or anybody else let me let me ask in terms of glo uh, global, so, so your sense is, so is your sense that in a year's time, we're going to be sending 10,000 troops there on an emergency basis, or are we basically going to divorce ourselves of this? Because this notion that we'll airlift people out, Corey, it, it doesn't strike me that we're, we'll airlift people out fast enough now that the Taliban has taken over police departments that have informer informant lists, uh, for example, that, that they, they have. President Biden has been very clear that he doesn't believe we bear any responsibility for what is occurring in Afghanistan. It's disgraceful. 
But I think the president's message has been very clear that we're not going to re-engage in Afghanistan. We are going to be insensitive to the destruction that will be wreaked in the havoc of our withdrawal. What is the message that it sends the international community then, right? This administration uh, has said that, you know, it's about human rights, it's about democracy, it's about self-determination. Uh, at the same time, right, messaging to China that the United States is is back. China and Russia point to Afghanistan uh, and to a degree to uh, Iraq and say, uh, look, the United States has a, and the international community has a tendency of abandoning you guys. We stick with people. Look how we're, uh, we stuck with uh, Bashar al-Assad. We kept him in power when it looked like he was going out. If you want a reliable partner, turn to Moscow and Beijing. Is, is what we're doing play into that uh, argument? I, I understand that those who support the administration and his policies maintain that it doesn't. But I got to tell you, reading Tony Blinken's note to uh, Afghan leaders was, was pretty tough. Yeah. yeah. And I agree with you that one detrimental message for American interests that our allies and adversaries can take from the decision to abandon Afghanistan is that even though we were paying a very low price to sustain our involvement, there hadn't been an American service woman or man killed in the prior year in Afghanistan. Um, so one message is if the United States isn't willing to pay that low a price um, to sustain what it says are our interests, how high a price would it pay for the liberty of Taiwan or South Korea or Estonia. Um, I think that's a dangerous message that tempts our adversaries to test our commitment. And in sending that message, we increase the price of sustaining our allies and our interests internationally. So uh, you, you don't see this as being selective and that the world understands, well, you know, Afghanistan is the way it is and the Afghans. I mean, I, I will I, I agree with you. I think our support there was making all the difference. And the Afghans really were in the driver's seat and pressuring and conducting some very sophisticated and successful raids against uh, the Taliban. The minute that we stopped doing it, uh, the dynamic changed, even though I think Afghan special operators are still doing a heroic job. Um, ultimately. Why are we keeping 2,500 people in Iraq and not keeping them in Afghanistan? I mean, what's the difference in these two missions? Why not withdraw equally from both? I suspect the Biden administration won't long sustain the commitment in Iraq either for exactly the reason you suggest, which is there's not a logical distinction between them. And... And uh, well, you've, you've made it very clear, right? I mean, it's hard to unwind uh, both both for ally and adversary uh, the the arguments. I, I don't believe it's 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 a it's a credible argument on the part of the administration that the the world understands that we will, you know, defend you against China, but but somehow the, the Afghanistan and Iraq are are are, but are somehow different. we would pay a much lower price to sustain our success in Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah. I yeah. mean, after three I trillion dollars in an investment, if I were an American adversary, I would question it. And if you were an American ally, you would as well. Yeah. 
let me take you uh, to China. It's been it's been a couple of months. Last time uh, you joined us on the program uh, was a couple of months ago. Uh, the administration has been even tougher than uh, the Trump administration when it comes to China, the focus on China, and to at least organize the international community against Beijing. Um, obviously, that has precipitated a lot of very tough debates in countries uh, across Europe. Uh, Germany, for example, right, uh, does a lot of industrial business, and the German economy is very uh, vulnerable to Beijing's influence, uh, something that Beijing has taken advantage of. And the same is true whether in Korea or in Japan or in Singapore or anywhere else that does trade with China. And yet the administration has been proving very successful. That in turn has precipitated another debate about whether or not this administration is actually being too tough uh, on on China and and stamping the gas uh, too hard, uh, whether it's uh, Jake Sullivan uh, or, or even the president uh, directly. Do you think that we're going too hard on China? No, I don't. And I think actually the right metric that we have some important elements of the strategy, including the pace of implementation, uh, pretty close to right, is how fast the debates are changing in other countries. You know, the Philippine president, erratic as he is, agreeing to sustain the US-Philippine defense agreement, you know, that's not due, I mean, credit to the Biden administration for, for bringing it home, but that's predominantly due to the outrageous and predatory behavior of China toward its neighbors. Um, and, and so I think the Biden administration is right to identify this as an ideological challenge about the nature of governments to their people and of states in the international order towards each other. I think they're right in defining it in those terms. I think they've done a really good job diplomatically engaging with Asia. It was a stroke of genius to have a vaccine initiative for the Quad so China couldn't complain that it was military encirclement. Um, I, but the huge gaping hole in Biden administration strategy towards China is they do not have an economic policy that will either wean countries off of their engagement with China or give them a reason to undertake the expense of aligning with American interests given the economic price China is going to make them pay. So they've got to get past this um, empty platitude about uh, a foreign policy for the middle class, which is barely concealed protectionism, and actually have an economic and trade plank of their strategy that supports the diplomatic and military elements of it. And, and what is that? Uh, look like? Because I, I think that that's spot on the mark, right? There is concern that this administration on the one hand is talking about engaging with allies and partners, but on the other hand is also talking about what is basically protectionism. Uh, and I think that every nation has an ability to mark uh, things that it views as strategic, industrial strategic 
capabilities, right? France bears an enormous burden uh, to be a nuclear power, uh, given it, it doesn't really share a lot of its nuclear technology, for example, as does the United Kingdom uh, and, and the United States, right? I mean, it makes it a little bit cheaper for, for, for Britain to sustain uh, a nuclear uh, deterrent than, than it does, for example, for France, but it's a strategic decision. What is a strategic um, economic engagement strategy look like? from your standpoint, because China wields enormous like, power. I think it looks like standard setting across cooperative economies. I think it looks like establishing secure supply chains, which is different from renationalizing supply chains. You know, the Japanese and Australians have a terrific initiative to create secure supply chains that they're hesitant to allow us to participate in because of our tariff policy and the erratic nature of Trump and Biden administration and the lassitude of Obama administration, right? Waiting until the last couple of months of the administration to deliver the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership. Um, we, we need to up our game by engaging in the multilateral trade arrangements in Asia by, um, by disavowing national solutions and instead focusing on transparent solutions that have the force of law and have allied cooperation. You know, I think the big strategic mistake the United States has made in recent years is that we're so comfortable thinking of ourselves as powerful now. We've lost the perspective that George Washington and uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln had of the United States being weak and others imposing rules on us. And we ought to be a lot more worried about that than we're behaving. And we ought to be grateful that other countries will be willing to cooperate with us um, on economic issues when China's wielding a great big club against those countries. We, we gotta actually stop being jerks and start acting like we're in the position we're actually in where we could lose control of standard setting politically, economically, and militarily. And that makes the international order a lot more expensive and a lot more brittle than the prosperous, secure order we have had the luxury of for some time. And just uh, another uh, mention of our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors uh, our coverage of joint all domain uh, command and control. You know, to the question of strategic hubris, which the United States has had an abundance of, you know, we've had a tendency of saying, you know, we're the best military, we're the best military, we're the best military. But John Hyten, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff recently said, you know, we had a major war game. It was conducted in a future scenario where we stayed on the course we were and the Chinese were fielding these capabilities and we got trounced in trying to defend Taiwan. And he said, we need to rethink fundamentally our approach. Um, you know, it, it starts, and I've used this argument before, right? The alcoholic has to admit they have a problem before they're cured. This was a little bit like the alcoholic uh, seeing it. On the other hand, 
we tend to hear this from end of career general officers, not those who are engaged in it. Are we at a strategic inflection point and are people recognizing the fragility of American power, especially after 18 months of pandemic? So I don't think American power is fragile. I actually think it's extraordinarily robust. Um, the, the dominance of the dollar and the financial arrangements, you know, that the Fed as the lender of last resort for the entire global financial system, the prevalence of the dollar in payments, like in the financial ecosystem, American power is extraordinarily prevalent and resilient. American cultural power is extraordinary and quite resilient. Who would have thought that people would still want American music and um, American products and American brands and American technology? Uh, American universe. I mean, there's so many dimensions of American power that we don't bother to notice. I do think it is important that the American military stop um, with this institutional dry rot of needing to be given the trophy of being called the best military in the history of the world. Um, because, for example, a better military ought to have anticipated an insurgency in Iraq and figured out in advance of its occurrence what to do about it. A better military would more carefully match war plans to political objectives. A better military would find ways to limber up its acquisition system um, and to make its personnel costs uh, sustainable as a proportion of the budget. Like there's so many things we can and should do better. And I do think the, the gaming that is going on in the American military is extraordinarily helpful in that, in that regard and many others, right? As Eisenhower said, plans are useless, but planning is everything. It trains your judgment about the nature of the problem. And the real advantage of American society is risk tolerance and creativity. So you're training the judgment of officers and, and soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardmen, everybody who's gonna actually have to fight a war and find creative solutions as problems present themselves and as adversaries figure out what our weaknesses are. But I do think it is a mistake to view in particular the challenge of the defense of Taiwan against a Chinese bombardment or invasion or, invasion or blockade in narrow military terms in the region. You know, the US has a lot of advantages and China has a lot of vulnerabilities that if we were in an actual war with China, uh, we would be able to do a whole lot of things that would impose economic, political, and military costs on China that might cause them to rethink the prospect of starting a war over Taiwan or anything else. Um, um, and I don't think we should 
we should talk ourselves into a belief either that we couldn't defend our interests or that we shouldn't defend our interests against China. Um, do you think we're in an inflection point? Do we recognize this? Because privately, when I talk to senior leaders, they have for years been saying that they acknowledge the problem, but it, it, it the, and the needle is moving, but not fast enough. Are, are okay, we- I love it that they think that because that means they're solving the problem. Right. The gears are beginning to mesh. We're beginning to get serious. We're looking carefully at supply chains and where uh, we're vulnerable and thinking about what it would mean if China could knock our satellites out of the sky. Like we're thinking our way through the problem and that's fundamentally healthy. And we should be extremely grateful that at least so far, our adversaries are giving us the time to get serious and adapt. Uh, do we need to talk about winning? Elaine Luria uh, and uh, the chairman of the uh, House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, have been talking about, hey, stop saying winning because it's 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 more about deterring and that we should be focused on deterring because nobody can fully define winning. And the point that's made is we didn't win in Afghanistan or in Iraq or in Vietnam or any one of a number of other places. But we also didn't deter in any of those places. Um, Believing you planning to win your wars is a great way to deter adversaries. So I don't agree with the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee on that. Let me uh, take you uh, to the question which precipitated and (laughs) scheduled this uh, conversation. And I took you on a whirlwind tour of the the world. Um, (laughs) You you and I have spent many years talking about civil-military relations. Um, And you, um, the chairman and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Mark Milley, uh, has drawn uh, some kudos from folks for taking a hard line and keeping the United States military out of whatever uh, mess it may have gotten into in January 6 or or thereafter um, uh, in the in the twilight of the last administration. And yet you took uh, the chairman to task. Um, talk to us about this because this is sort of a very classical anybody who's been to a service academy knows you know what are the ethical, moral, and legal elements. Uh, and and dynamics in what should remain an apolitical uh, approach by the United States military. To some, Mark Milley acted honorably in a scenario that all of his predecessors had actively tried to avoid. Um, but give us give us your sense on why the apolitical nature of the military, in in, in your perspective, is is vulnerable. And you so wrote uh, in a July nineteen, I want to say, piece uh, in the Atlantic. So I should start by saying, I think civil military relations in the United States are fundamentally healthy and that we are arguing um, on small percentages on the margins. I don't think there's a crisis of civil military relations. Um, I don't think anywhere close. And I think the American military, I think General Milley made an enormous series of mistakes in his public comportment uh, in Lafayette Square I think he actually strengthened civil military relations with his apology for that. And I think the willingness of President Trump and the people around him to so ruthlessly use our military for partisan purposes really scared folks in the building and caused a lot of very serious, productive 
thinking about how to make sure that in the run-up and aftermath of a contested election, the American military was not part of that process. And it wasn't just General Milley, General McConville, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, all of the leadership kept saying, the appropriate role for the American military in contested elections is nothing. And that was a very helpful message for them to send and more important actions for them to take. I think one of the reasons there were slow responses to the emergent crisis on January 6th was precisely the result of the military, both the military and the elected civilian leadership in the District of Columbia, not wanting to militarize uh, the problem. So there were a series of mistakes, but I think they were honorable mistakes. What I was contesting in the, in the Atlantic piece that you mentioned was General Milley's testimony where he voluntarily uh, answered a series of questions about, about race, critical race theory, reading lists, um, and some of that, you know, that I read Marx and I'm not a communist was both pithy um, and a nice way to handle it. But I think he stepped over the line uh, with his comments about, you know, the American military and, and I personally need to understand the roots of white rage. I think that actually opened the military up to being dragged into more political um, more political circumstances. It made it, uh, it opened the door to other military folks being asked their views on this rather than shielding the military from any of that kind of business by members of Congress or anybody else. Uh, it, isn't it though, I mean, isn't it a total misnomer that general uh, and flag officers at that rank are apolitical? Isn't their job to be political navigators and to bear that role as elegantly as possible to avoid the rest of the organizations, right? I mean, do they not live at the pressure cooker intersection of civilians, uh, members of Congress, the so ecosystem? The, the argument that you're making has also been made by an eminent scholar of civil military relations, Dr. Risa Brooks, that we shouldn't want an apolitical military we should just want a military that's not involved in partisan politics, but that they need to be politically savvy in order to navigate these corridors of civilian power. And that and, and, and protect and protect the rest of the force from the politicization, right? I mean, very nervous because I think it leads exactly to where General Milley um, exposed the military in his testimony to, right, you, you don't get to be a little bit political. And it's very difficult. My guess is that most of the American military leadership, they're not trained political professionals. They're not gonna be able to navigate that with the elegance you suggest. Every once in a while, you'll get a Colin Powell, but that's, that tends not to be the middle of the bell curve. 
And I would rather have the problems of an apolitical military that doesn't know how to elegantly navigate the corridors of power than I would like to run the risks of a politicized military that loses the confidence of their elected civilian superiors because they are seen as political actors. But how should he have answered that question with members who are trying to politicize something that I believe he is not trying to politicize, right? I think it's true. Do you have to understand uh, racial questions? You're commanding a diverse force. Uh, there are, is extremism and extremism in the yeah, ranks. It's important to see. those things. If you look at the, if you look at some of the reporting after General Milley's testimony, uh, his predecessor, retired General Dunford, tried to give that answer to clean it up, right. uh, which is to say, diversity is an enormous challenge in a country like ours and in a military like ours. Um, and in order to lead it well, we need to think carefully about these issues and inclusion and, and representation are really important. If he had just said that, he'd have been fine. But, but he didn't just say that. Moreover, he wasn't asked that question. He volunteered to wade into those issues. And I think he would have been better served by taking the advice that the great Clarence Darrow, defense attorney, always gave his clients, which is no man was ever convicted based on testimony he did not give. You've been very generous with your time. 30 seconds for the last question uh, on COVID. Uh, United States dashed out ahead of the world, and we've plateaued at a little north of 50% of the entire population vaccinated. European uh, partners and allies that began months after us have already streaked uh, ahead of us. Uh, Secretary Austin has asked the president to mandate vaccinations across the force, and that's going to be forthcoming. What does this entire episode tell the world about the United States as a great power, ultimately? It tells the world, um, as the British historian Bertha Ann Reuter wrote in 1923, that Americans are a people so extreme in politics or religion or both that they could not live in peace anywhere else. We're a difficult, disputatious country. And, and things that may be easy in other political cultures are not easy in the United States. But that also isn't news to anybody anywhere in the world, because we run into these kinds of challenges all of the time. We have a political system built to create these kinds of challenges so that you can't enforce large changes without winning the political argument. And so we're in the midst of a big political argument. But uh, he did follow your advice to just press ahead and give everybody the shot? Well, I think within the military, it's a force readiness issue. And the reason we don't allow um, experimental mandates for vaccinations in the military is because we rightly as a society don't want our military to be guinea pigs for experimental treatments that the broader public aren't also engaged in. But 150 million or so Americans have been vaccinated. 
we're not asking the military to do something that the rest of the public isn't doing. And I think there are good operational reasons to want to make sure that our force is protected against this terrible pandemic. Corey, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. I commend to our audience to check out her writings, uh, especially as she contributes regularly to The Atlantic, but also AEI and elsewhere. Thanks so much. It's a great pleasure, my friend. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.